Hi, I'm Caroline Carey, and you know, I'm always inspired by other people's life stories. So I listen for the soul journey that is interwoven between each individual's experiences throughout their life. Join me to hear for yourself how each narrative becomes a transformative and inspiring message for us all. Enjoy the podcasts. Spencer is a ceremonialist and she's a workshop leader. I've met her a few times at different shamanic festivals and where she's been holding ceremony and I always had an interest in elders, uh, particularly in this field of um, earth-based spiritual traditions. And it's been really interesting to have a conversation with her about the importance of storytelling in our culture. One of the things about exploring eldership is that we each have a story to tell. It's one of the reasons I do this podcast. We each have an important message for others, for those who follow us, and for the children and the grandchildren. And Annie gives us some really beautiful information about why storytelling is so important. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast. So Annie, you're in Bath. Yes. You're what would be considered an an elder in our communities here. Um, I've met you on the shamanic gathering in the UK a few times. Don't know if you remember that I was there and uh, I was always very inspired by you. So tell us, what does it mean to be an elder in these communities today? Um, what to say? I suppose it means it, that you need to be available for people. Because it, it seems like more and more people contact me with this problem or that question or that the other desire. Mm-hmm. And I feel as an elder, you 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 don't have a family. Um, I still work, but never mind. <laughs> But you do, it's, I think your main role is to be available to other people. I feel your own sort of energy for your own um, and ambition goes down <clears throat> as you get older. It just naturally goes down. So it's easier then to feel prepared to support other people in whatever they're trying to do. And that feels mm. very important. Mm. Yeah. How much time do you have to give to that, do you feel? Or do you have to be careful to not give yourself too much or I know that one myself it's like sometimes I have to be a bit careful because really a lot of people now you write they want to come and see me um and I'm always willing but sometimes you have to watch it or you haven't got time for your own things because you're constantly trying to answer emails and phone calls and Mm. make space and then someone's I mean but you know Someone recently came from Germany, someone else came from Scotland. If they come from so far and make such an effort, yeah, you feel you you need to give them something, really, because it's quite honouring for them to come yes. some way. Yeah, absolutely. So I met you at the shamanic gathering. What was your role there? What was it that you 
you oh, think? I did two things. <clears throat> I was one of the co-organizers. Mm. Elsa and Howard, wasn't it? And yeah. before Elsa died. Yeah. And so um, between us, I mean, they did most of the work. And but I was a, more of a support, you could say, and we would discuss whom who we might invite or if there was some problem, I'd be there to help them mm. sort it out. And so sometimes I presented, but quite often I didn't because I was on the other side, on the management side, shall we say. Mm. Um, but I left it quite a long time ago now. And you, you held some of the ceremonies, if I recall. Oh, some of the ceremonies, yes. I, I mean, ceremony is my thing, really. Mm. And and over the years, the numbers of people I have to hold them for has got bigger and bigger. So that's, I'm still learning, really. Um, yeah, you're always learning, eh? One's always learning, isn't one? Yeah, yeah. One's always faced with new challenges. So that's exciting, really. T tell us about you as a ceremonialist. What does that mean? Um, I've always loved, I think all my life, I've loved the land. My grandparents were farmers, so mm. I spent a lot of time, you know, helping milk the cows, helping get in the corn, helping get in the bracken, uh, watching my grandfather and my uncles go out and look at the weather and decide if they should do this or that tomorrow, depending on what it smelled like and what it looked like. So I was sort of, I was very fortunate in that I didn't just sort of go out for walks or have a garden. I was really um, able to have a feeling for how everything worked a little bit and how you could notice a lot of how it worked. Let me turn this off. Um, and then my other thing, I've always had a love of the holy, the sacred, Mm, the mm. divine and so I suppose those two come naturally together and I've learned a lot from Native American people from North America and I've learned a lot from Central America I've learned some from um, the first peoples of Australia a little bit of the Yoruba teaching so it's sort of a lot quite around the world really since mm. there's not much left here and really from the more I learned about gratitude and so ceremony for me, its primary purpose is gratitude, is to make something delicious and beautiful for the holy. To say thank you for this life, even if some of the time it's been pretty difficult. Yeah. And thank you for everything that keeps me alive and gives me joy, every sort of material thing that comes into my life, a non-material. Mm -hmm. Because we don't really do that anymore, do, they? do we? So sort of, I suppose over the years, I sort of fell into being a ceremonialist. I did a lot of healing and I'm a psychotherapist. And then at one point, the path diverged a bit, really by accident, of course. And so I developed ceremony and, and I love it. Yeah. And um, I hold ceremonies for many different purposes. But that is the main thing. So whatever purpose I'm holding it for, somewhere in the background has to be making beauty either with words, with your hands, with whatever, and giving thanks. Mm -hmm. And so I might be doing a marriage, or I might be doing a rite of passage, or I might be doing a big ceremony for a festival. I might be doing a little tiny ceremony for me on, on, a, on, a, on a day, or just because it felt right. But I always 
have an element of gratitude in it. Beautiful. That's so lovely, Annie. And you, you said that there's not much left here in the UK, you mean by that. And what is it that we've lost here? I think we've lost, well, we've lost a lot, haven't we? We've lost our practices. I think what we've lost is like, there are old stories, there are bits of forms, there are the fire ceremonies, you know, what we could do to celebrate the turning of the year. But I think we've lost the layers and the depth. So a lot of us don't really understand uh, the richness of, of ceremony and how deep it can go. And because we've never had it, we don't notice that it's not there. So mm -hmm. going to other traditions was very important for me to learn about that. Um, and then a lot of our sto old stories have been Christianized or chopped off. Again, when you go somewhere else, you discover, you know, I went to uh, the west of Canada once and met this man and we had a good time together for two two days. I mean, not him and me, but, and um, he said, you should come back, come back for Christmas. Can we, we tell a good story in the middle of the winter? I said, how long would that take? He said, well, the story usually takes two weeks. Wow, fabulous. So, and the ones that I've learned, the longest that I've learned probably takes three hours. That's still quite long. Um, and then in that time, the story goes along and you think it could end there, but then it turns and it goes somewhere quite else and you think it could end there. And then it turns and it has a whole other section to it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, so much does it say in its long meander. Yeah. I think a lot of, you know, if you think of our fairy stories are the old stories or, and when I look, you know, my family come from Corn, I look for, you know, I come from Zena. There's the, the story of the mermaid of Zena. But all we have left is about three lines. She came up, she stole a chorister and she took him down to the sea with him. That's it. There's, and I, I feel that's already Christianized because he was already singing in the church. Wow. Or, you know, um, Cornwall is full of giants. Almost every hill down in West Penwith has a giant table or a giant chair or there's a giant football or whatever it is. We have Hollyburn who walks across the hills from Zena to Morva. But the, the stories, again, are, are minuscule. They're nothing. So they've, they've shriveled. So all the teachings that the stories held aren't there anymore either, not really. Right. And that's the essence of it, isn't it? It's that the stories hold the the teachings that go yeah. with them. And that's what we've what's been taken away from us in effect. Yeah, because Christianity came in and also they demonized a lot. If you look at a lot of stories, say about fairies or pixies or giants, they're always bad. The giants are stupid mm. and the fairies are unkind. Mm. And I doubt it. But, you know, there was a lot of demonizing going on, like 13 is an unlucky number, but actually it's the number of the phases of the moon. And for women, it's a very sacred number, but there was taboo put up against it. And those taboos work quite well. They're quite strong. Yeah. That's what I really mean. And things like, you know, when you look at Imbok, where we sort of are, you know, there are various bits of stories that the Kaliak one is the Kaliak walks down into the well and comes up as a young woman again. And another is that the Kaliak and Bridie Bridget fight 
And so some days it's sunny like today, but actually it's quite cold. And other days it's raging and then it'll be snowy again. And that's the two of them fighting because the Kaliak doesn't want to go back into her cave. And they're all sorts of little pieces, aren't they? Bits and pieces. But it's difficult to thread them all together. And again, maybe some of the depth, you have to really struggle to find the depth in it all. Right, right. And and where did you first fall in love with these stories? Where did you first find them? Any stories, you mean? Well, these these particular stories, you know, the mythology and the the the, the stories of our heritage, really, and the ones that we have actually lost. What's um, your interest in that? Well, I've always I've always loved stories. I have a hopeless memory. Completely, I remember nothing, especially names. But I remember stories. I only have to hear one once. I I found what was the story? Oh, it was the horsetail girl. I was looking for um another story. I was doing some work for a for a conference in um Canada and it was around I can't remember, see, I can't remember the name. A particular story. And I thought I better check some of the details. So I looked stuff on the internet as one does. And I didn't have any books over there. And I came across this other story, The Horsetail Girl. So I read it out of curiosity. I thought, this is a wonderful story. But I went on and did what I had to do. And later, when I went back, I could not find The Horsetail Girl. I could find no reference to her. But I remembered her enough that I started telling that story. And then a year or two later, someone found a book for me with it on in it. Wow. But it's just so, somewhere they really sing to me. And, you know, I, I love working with people. I love any form of story. Did you love stories when you were a little girl? Did you read a lot? Well, I was, I read all the time. It was my escape. I was always away in a book. My sister and my mother cooked and I read. <laughs> and my mom had a, two extraordinary grandmothers. When I talk about a lot, who's a farmer, but the other one, did write me quite a fat book of a story. And it was a story about me and my cousins down in Cornwall and that we went off up the hill and found these pixies and then all sorts of things happened between us. And she illustrated them. It was rather not very wonderful <laughs> illustrations, but nevertheless, she did it. She did it. Wow. Someone to type it up and she bound it. I've still got it. So. She introduced me to all of that, and she sort of in a through story. And then when I was older, she said, well, of course, it was just a load of nonsense, but it was too late. I, I, <laughs> I'd taken it all at face value, and there was the hill, you know, and there were the flowers. It was all there. And there was um, an old quarry in the hill, and that was where we used to go and meet the fairies, evidently. So it was all there, you know, so in my mind to embroider it a little more as yeah. a child. Nothing. That's that's lovely. My my mother used to say the fairies lived at the bottom of the garden, and she had seen them, and and they they lived there. And I was utterly fascinated with the fairy world. So, yes. um, yeah, why not? I mean, our, our little girls need that hay rather than the plastic dolls and the. Well, the they always say that until is it the age of seven. You know, children are very open between mm. seven and eight. They close by and large, mostly because our culture says it's a load of rubbish. Yeah. They close it off because they want to find out what their world is. Yeah, yeah. 
then it becomes their imagination, and then their imagination isn't on it either. So the whole thing shrivels in a lot of children, doesn't it? It does, yeah, it, it, absolutely. It is what happens. And and telling children that's just your imagination is such a damaging thing, hey? We have to keep that imagination open. Yeah, that's... that's People it. say, you know, kids won't like old stories. They like sort of... And I used to work with bad kids, uh, you know, teenagers, 14, 15-year-olds, right. and usually bad ones. So we take them out into the woods. They loved my stories. Uh, there was one, that the long one, one of the long ones, I can't remember which, anyway. I didn't have time to tell the whole story. It's very bad. You should never stop a story mm. in the middle. Mm. It's not good for the story. <laughs> but anyway, they listened like this with an absolutely silent. And I said, well, I can't tell you the second half but until the next time we meet, which was a few months away. The first thing they said to me the next time we met is, we need the rest of that story. It's like they would, if it's a good story, yeah. everybody loves it. Yeah. It's oh. to say that they don't. That's fun. And, and it's the way you tell them as well, isn't it? When you put your heart and soul into it. There's something yeah, around it. Heart and soul, isn't it? Because yeah. a lot of people, I, I do a rite of passage for young women. Mm. And in return, we ask them to learn an old story and come back to the community sometime in the next year and tell it. And someone said to me, someone first of all said, oh, I found a professional storyteller who'll train him up. I said, no, thank you. And then someone else said to me, so where are they, how do you train them? I said, I don't train them. I tell them they have to imagine, they have to be there while they're telling it. And that while they're learning it, they should go out and tell it to the natural world. Mm -hmm. I said, the sheep you'll find are very interested Sheep are very interested if one talks to them. Wow. The trees and everything, and that's all. And everybody, so far in three years, no one has managed to tell a bad story in a bad way. Right. Very often oh. they've never told a story before. Mm. So I think, right, it's your passion, but most of all, it's your imagining yourself in there because then your imagination is connecting to the listener's imagination. Mm. Another thing I think is really useful is if you think if you imagine it in somewhere that you know, so then you can put in details of the place or the plants, or whatever, and you can see them in your mind's eye because you've been there. Mm. That really helps bring it alive. But once you've done that, but you can imagine yourself anywhere, can't you? Of course, of course, the imagination is so important. I know. I, but you, you said about reading books and that you used that as to escape you escaped into your books as a child what were you escaping from boredom okay i lived in a flat in london oh, okay was up in a flat in london and i think i got bored quite a lot i had a sister she was three and a half years younger which is quite a lot younger so we played a lot but also she, i think i was probably mean to her she was irritating because she could never quite keep up. You know what I mean? But I partly, partly was an escape, and partly I just loved it. Yeah. I would read anything. I'd go to, we went to the went a lot to um, Cornwall, and my aunts nobody read much, so there were about four Victorian children's books. And then I had to read the love stories in my aunt's magazines because there was nothing else. <laughs> I did. I'd read anything. 
Right, right. And a bit like that. So your imagination was really active in, in yes. just in the reading of that and what yeah, reading is it? They don't show you anything. It's all got to be. And then if you read a good book, you never really want to see the film, do you? Because well, it's, it's dangerous, isn't it? You're, you have it all there in your mind, and then the film comes along and shows it in completely. She didn't look like that. They didn't live there. You know what I mean? It's like. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And it sometimes overlays what you have in your own imagination. Mm. You can't always get it back in the same way. Absolutely. No, no, I get you. So what do we need in our culture now to to try and somehow to reignite this need for story? Or is it is it just not going to happen? We've got so much video and film and programs on TV, all of that. Stories are given to us just in, in such a huge, vast array, what is it that we could heal in ourselves or make whole in ourselves, make better, um, if we were to give ourselves to the story a little bit more? Let me think. Um, I think the stories need to be some way attached to the natural world probably is what we need because i mean there are wonderful films aren't there mm, of course yeah. and there are brilliant things on youtube and i just saw something by Werner herzog about the green ant which is all about a cast between aboriginals and some pe mining people because they wanted to blast somewhere where the was very important to the green ants and it was told really well you know so i it was beautiful, but um, I think it's important to find out what stories there are. Wherever you live, in your place, there will be some. I mean, and also that you start also making your own stories. I mean, whenever I went around, we went driving around to say my aunt passed these farmhouses and little villages, Oh, do you remember so and so lived there and they did this? And do you remember when they ran away with that and such and such happened? And we'd be on to somewhere else. Oh, do you remember uh, Mary Osborne lived there? Do you remember the time when she when she got married and so and so got drunk? Every place had a story. Now these are quite mundane, but in the old days those stories were attached to the place and, and then bits were added. So sometimes a bit was about people who'd lived there. And a bit was about the energy of the place, and it was all mixed up together. And I remember reading some uh, story from the mountain in probably Ohio, and it, it was a mixture of teaching, sort of moral teaching, and mythology. What, but maybe not. Maybe all the mythology was actually really happened and was just described in a particular way, and the history. Mm. It was all. So it's like you could tell a little bit about a giant and then you could go on to when you had a picnic there and then you could go on to someone else who'd lived there 300 years ago and somehow they could all be massed into a story. So there's something around um, getting used to telling stories and seeing things in the, in the way of a story. Because the other thing is it, it's easier for us to remember, I think, as abstract facts. Yeah, so, you know, um, peoples in the Americas hold a lot of understanding 
and our scientists are beginning, but they teach it in such a way that anyone can understand it. So I, I was listening to Tokyasin Force, who is a wonderful speaker, a Lakota man, and um, he's on YouTube, that's why I was listening to him. And he was talking about how when they were in a government school and they were useless at geography and history and English, and they always got very bad marks. But when it came to physics, mm -hmm. they were sort of top of the class. And the mm -hmm. teachers thought they must have cheated. So they beat them and then made them take the exam again. And they still were top of the class. Because he said, that is our view of life. We understand physics because our understanding of life includes that. Wow. And yet we always think they're simple. Wow. They tell they tell it in stories and they tell it in terms of people and quite simple interactions rather than mm. scientific equations so that everyone understands to a deep level what life is about. Mm. And it's finding the medicine in the stories, isn't it? This is, this is, you know, what is it particularly about this story that's going to inspire and or you know, offer something uh, for others to grow from or work yeah. themselves with? So, yeah, I, I love stories. Mm. Oh, this is so rich, Annie. Um, so beautiful and such wonderful knowledge you have around it in, in such an understandable way. It, it's, and I love the connection you have with nature around the stories that's really important isn't it because we're devoid of nature we do have fantastic ways of witnessing story and maybe that is the new storytelling of our times in on some level but we are missing the heart and soul in it aren't we and then the connection to nature what was i you know there's always someone who reminds you again and again of things you sort of know you run around being busy just like everyone else from getting to do it sometimes but that thing, and I suppose story helps with that too, is like if you really want to understand about life, start simply, but notice detail. Mm. And notice detail, not just, and also notice not just with your eyes, which is our language is visual, so we're constantly referring to sight, or our ears, which we use a lot, but the rest of our senses, touch, but also, if you think of the, your whole body, actually, if you think that we're an extension of the Earth, imagine that the Earth is a being and like I'm, I don't know, just a, a tiny bit of skin on one of its fingers, for example, you know? And so the Earth communicates with me through my physicality. So then when I go out, say, you only have to have a little garden Oh, you only need to go into park. It's, you need to go out further sometimes. But when you don't have it, you just go somewhere. Yeah. And you just try to experience it with the whole of your body rather than just your eyes. Mm. And what does the wind feel like on my skin? And what do I smell? And what does the wind feel like on my hair? And can I feel through my shoes if they're not got two thick cells and what's the earth feel like and how is it different to if I'm walking on a pavement mm. and if I touch the grass and if I just sit there and imagine myself just opening up with my whole body rather than my mind and my eyes 
how would that be? And that's the way really, I think, to get in touch with the natural world. And it doesn't take that long. That's the thing. Really getting in touch, does it? You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all think, oh, it's some skill that indigenous people have and we'll never have. And then other people say, well, of course, we can really never connect to the earth until we've uh, healed all our trauma. And I think, I don't think that's true. Mm. I think actually connecting with the earth will help us heal our trauma. Absolutely. I don't think we have to remember everybody's stories in our ancestry way back to the year dot to heal. Because we are the ones with life now. We are the ones with the body. So we are the ones who can heal what they need healing through the way we live our lives. Mm. You know, we can, we, stories again, but some stories maybe are not so helpful. And, you know, having been a therapist, it's very difficult. You, you get people to tell you their story because you need to have a little understanding of what's going on. Mm. But maybe you shouldn't really. I did learn body work too, where you just really work with their body and the, and the stresses in their body rather than... Because what I see people do, they then get attached yeah. to their story, don't they? And they say, well, you know, such and such happened to me as a child, so this is who I am. Mm. Well, that's just your story of who you are. I love Native American people because they always make their story, they're trying to make their story rather bigger than it was and rather grand. Yeah. But that's to help them have faith and um, feel good about themselves. That's not, yeah. you know, and we might try doing that too. Mm. You know what? Yeah. This terrible thing happened in my childhood, but do you know what? I survived and here I am and the sun still rises every morning and I greet it and thank it because I have life. Absolutely. Um, you know, I can't do this or I can't do that because yeah. I'll never be able to do this or that. And maybe to some degree, I may not be able to fulfill myself in some areas of my life. And I, maybe we have to accept that as well. It's like people with a physical disability have to accept, you know, maybe they're never going to run or maybe they're not going to walk mm. or sorts of things. But with an emotional disability, maybe it's the same. Maybe in an area of my life, I would always find that hard. But there are others to develop. Yeah, yeah. And and also to, to understand that I have this and I understand I have empathy for others who might hold that as well. And that yeah. and I can be of support and empowerment for them if i find solutions and overcome it yes it will return but i know how to work with it i know how to tell the story of it and maybe there's a beautiful mythological story you can create from that um yeah. you know your own creation story what you've had to work through and how those you had to fight those demons i mean there's, there's there are some beautiful tales to tell of our own experiences aren't there well unfortunately good stories generally come out of bad if it's a life that's all been good, it's very boring to listen to, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. We want to hear the tragedy and we want to hear the recovery from it and the solutions and, and how we went to battle and, and fought it and came out with the treasure ourselves. Now you think so, of those young men were turned to stone for years. What was that about? Oh, wow. Mm. What was going on in them that they were turned to stone and couldn't, couldn't respond to anybody? Well, we can relate to that in this day and age, can't we? That wasn't physically stoned, but just shut down. Yeah, dissociated, maybe. Yes. 
we all have those kind of stories, hey, if we're fortunate enough to have them and that we can make a story from them yeah. and write it down and share it with others from the heart. Yeah. 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 Every every day there's a little bit of story in one's life, isn't there? Yes, uh, there is. There is. If I go to a workshop or a ceremony, I always pay attention to the journey and also to the day before. And there'll be something in that day that will tell me about what's going to transpire. And sometimes there'll be a good teaching story and a little, I'm so sad. I keep remembering there was, I went to a workshop and there was something that happened with swallows. <laughs> That's all I can tell you, because I've forgotten. But it was a good teaching story that actually I did, I did work with it. Um, at that time, but I've forgotten it now, but it involved swallows. I love swallows. Absolutely. Like, you know, there's always something there, either for you or actually for the whole, for everybody. Yes. Or somebody, and you don't know who it's going to be, do you? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's beautiful. So learning um, to talk in that way, really, and also a lot of things are difficult for us to understand abstractly. And it's like, I think, a lot to do with spirit and our relationship with the land. You can't really explain it in a rational way. But you can tell stories around it, and then people's imaginations begin to understand, and their beings resonate with what you're saying. And I would say they don't understand, but they get it. Right, yes. That's different, isn't it? Yeah, they, like, they feel it. They yeah. feel it viscerally, rather yeah. than analytically trying to work it out. It's really a better way because then they really know it. Sometimes yeah. it says, that can't be true. It's a load of nonsense. I don't understand. <laughs> but so then there's that split between the knowing mm. and maybe what I've been taught. And you mm. have to deal with that sometimes because your knowing quite often goes beyond yeah. what you can rationalize. There's something about the, what's called the deeper knowing. Yes. Like yeah. an embodied knowing. And that's not difficult either. No, it's it's not difficult, is it? It's only our thinking mind that will tell us it's difficult. Yes. Yeah. Well, and those of us who, you know, and nowadays there's so many sort of books to be written and courses to be taught about things that really <laughs> are not very difficult. I think more and more, you know, I have less and less to teach, really, because it's all so simple, really. Yeah. I used to teach all these complicated Native American things. And I think coming back to this land and coming back to where we are in mm. terms of what we remember of how to relate to the land and the spirit as it, as because spirit and matter are the same. So how does spirit express itself through our land here mm. that we can respond to? We can only start from where we are. So in a way we have to be humble and be prepared to be simple and do what we can. And for some people, things will come. And maybe in the two or three generations, we'll have a wonderful relationship and a rich array of stories and ceremonies mm -hmm. that we have slowly remembered and brought back to life. But mm -hmm. I think we have to be patient. Mm -hmm. And it's not what I'm going to see in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But never mind. I sow the seeds as I can, as well as I can. Absolutely. And that's what we have to do, isn't it? Yes, spread the seeds. That's absolutely. That's what elders have to do a lot. Is sow what seeds you can, knowing that things will come that you'll never see. 
Yeah. And more and more will come that you'll never see as you get older and older. And will you even see it next week? <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a little bit of that. And I say that to people and they say, oh, no, 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 you're going to live to 100. And I thought, well, I might, but I probably won't. But the thing is, I and they have to get used to the fact that I am going to go. Mm. And that's another thing about being an elder, isn't it? It is a true elder. Absolutely. Mm. And and I love that saying, you know, you plant seeds that you'll never see grow. Uh, you, you don't know what the future holds, um, but you know it's there for the children that that find them. Yeah, that pick the blossoms. And... Well, hopefully a lot that you're teaching will pass, some, some of them will pass it on and it'll go through them yeah. and they'll understand it a little better probably because they maybe got it younger and then they'll pass it on to the younger and then it'll spread around the community because somewhere it goes into the collective, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. The things I used to teach 40 years ago, I mean, I'm always on the run. You know, everybody knows that now. It's just, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's just become an, a normal thing. And then you have to run ahead of them and think, okay, so what's the next thing? And then that becomes a normal thing. Mm. I mean, you know, um, understanding your psychology. 50 years ago, nobody much understood their psychology. But now, you know, when my daughter was a teenager, they, always talk, they were talking away. With boys, good God, you never talk with boys about things like that. They understood nothing, they weren't interested, and you understood virtually nothing. But it's gone into the collective and alternative realities. There was not an alternative reality, there was only one. But everybody now plays with alternative realities, maybe electronically, but it's a given that there isn't just one. Any mm. other? Uh, yeah. Much food for thought, Annie. So what does the future hold for you at this time? Who knows? Um, well, I'm doing this rites of passage for young women. Okay. This is, it, it's my sort of, and we're trying to build a community around that, which is interesting because the people don't live in the same place. So mm -hmm. how do you build a community when you only meet sometimes, but how do you build it so that when you meet, you act in a, in a sort of good way with each other. And then I'm thinking, and I'm being asked, well, what about the young men? And I know young men are desperate. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm sort of thinking about that. So I'm hoping that that might come to fruition, but I don't know how long it'll take because the men have to, shall I say this publicly? The men have to be ready. And everyone says, you know, um, the women are going to, the women have, the women are going to help us get back into balance. The women are going to do this. The women are going to do that. And the men say, we must find our femininity. And I'm there thinking at the moment, so I may change tomorrow. This is my current thought that maybe men need to humble themselves enough to be prepared to learn from women, actually, actually go and be taught by women mm. about rites of passage or about spirit or whatever. You know, my workshops are full of women. Mm. Men are beginning to come. Younger men are beginning to come now. But it's because otherwise, how will we ever really change the balance? Because men who talk wonderfully about all of this, their every attitude is still entitlement. And you know what I mean? Because it's, because it's, because it's so instilled in them. 
and with us women, it's quite hard because our every attitude is, although we, we're angry about it, you know, they know best as a man. And I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. I like mm. to quote people and not name them. Mm. The womb is a, 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 a smaller version of the creativity of the whole of the universe. Women hold this inside themselves. Women need to be honored for this both by ourselves whether we have children or not, is still in our makeup mm. by men. But he also said, he said, but women now are so angry, they're so full of, we are, so full of rage, quite rightly. But he said an interesting thing, and I said, I think he said it some years ago, again, I saw it on YouTube, but I was, I was really drawn by it. He said, women, it's not a question of getting rid of your anger, it's mm. a question of transforming it. And there are ceremonies that women need to do to bring out that what they hold within what we hold within our bodies. Yeah. Now I only heard this yesterday, so I haven't worked out what that will be. <laughs> yeah. But it's really interesting to me. And mm. that thing about transforming our rage, because yes, rage is full of power, isn't it? It is our it takes a lot of our power. Mm. It mm. holds a lot of our power. And if we could reclaim that we need that because we need a huge amount of power yeah i i totally agree and with you i think we're in a hurry all the prophecies say we're in a hurry and yeah. the breakdown one said two years one said four one said eight so we're really in a hurry so mm. um it means that everyone doesn't have to panic but if everyone did a little thing, what they could do, a huge amount would be achieved. And yes. not to waste time criticizing. Because every time you criticize, you give energy to that other. If you think of it all as a dream, a dream of life. Mm. And life's dream, the, uh, the way that we dream life as a collective can change. And at the moment, it's materialism and it's capitalism and it's war and whatever else it is. And one of the things we need to do is dream another dream, which a lot of people are doing. But if we give the energy all the time to that, even if we don't know all of its form, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. We'll never know all of its form, but we have a feeling for it. And we give all our energy to that, then the other starts. And then that goes out into the collective and more and more of us who do that the other will start to shrivel. Impossible as that seems, it's how it works. Mm. One time, our dream of life was different. And then this patriarchal dream came in and has gathered power. But actually, it's in a state of terrible collapse and not working anywhere. Mm. Mm. And it is beginning to shrivel. But it's like the more, so the more of us who can hold something different, even if they're different difference, it's not giving energy to that. Mm. Then the collective, which probably people think I'm mad, but never mind. The collective starts filling up with other possibilities for humans. And as it fills up, then other, it's like, shall we say, when the light bulb was discovered, when the steam engine was discovered, generally you find three or four or five people are making that discovery at the same time, and one gets it out there and it's their name. Right. And I remember there's a the whole thing about Stevenson 
who discovered the steam engine, he was Cornish, and then he got distracted and he went off to mine gold in South America for a few years. When he came back, someone else had taken, I've even, maybe even got the names wrong, as you know, I, my memory is useless. And so he was never the person who, re someone else had taken all the fame for that because he also had discovered it. So then you'd say, all right, so it's somewhere it's starting to emerge in the collective. So if we put this into the collective, it will start emerging mm. and various people will run with it. Mm. it. May not be the dreamers, but never mind. As long as it's it's there. Yeah, no, I, I get that. That's uh, that's very profound actually, Annie. Um, it just needs to come through, whatever it is, and some will take it out into the world and some won't. But that has happened a lot with women, hasn't it? Yes. In, in, in our history, a lot of women have invented or found solutions for things and the men have run with it because the women weren't allowed to unless they changed their name or something bizarre. So there's a lot of anger there as well, isn't there? Well, there's a lot of righteous anger about probably yeah. every area of our lives. Yeah, yeah. So women don't want, in a way, to acknowledge how important our wounds are because mm. we've been used as baby makers for men for such a long time. Mm. Mm. That's really sad because we, there's no point us going out and sort of being like men to get power. No. no. We hold something that's missing and needed. That's the thing. It's Yeah, yeah. We're getting there. We're all working towards it. I think we are, Annie. I think I think we are really starting to stand up and uh, speak out and share our medicine. Hey, and you're a fantastic example of that. Thank you so much for all that you've shared today. It's been real honour and privilege to hear you and to just to sit here and be incredibly inspired. So thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you and to see your face across here. I've really, really enjoyed it. Oh. you give out oh thank you Annie thank you so much for listening right to the end I hope you enjoyed that podcast and remember you can be in touch with myself or this speaker my website is middleearthmedicine.com we have a wonderful membership platform that you can join for just £5 a month and we have lots of recordings and interesting information that we can share with you there plus meeting online with regular groups you can also find the details of our speaker in the box below with their links, their websites, and a little bit of information about them. Thank you for joining me and being part of this Middle Earth Medicine community. I hope you'll listen to our next show. Please follow, share, like, whatever you can do to help this community to grow. We really appreciate you. Thank you.